Hello, welcome to the first Oh God, What Now of 2022. I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet our regulars in what will be our sixth year podcasting together. Holy fucking Christ, are you serious? 2017, 18, 19, 20, 20, 21, 2022. Oh my, oh my God. God. You look so old. Oh. <laughs> Don't try that one on me. <laughs> <laughs> and our last. <laughs> Ian Dunt, uh, outgoing panellist, is a... (laughs) (laughs) Outgoing in what sense? Is a a columnist at the ITA. He'll still have one job. Hello, Ian. (laughs) Hello, hello, hello. Um, Now that Twitter has permanently suspended politics for all, where are you going to get your politics news from? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's the mixture of incisive uh, Coventry and Gravitas that I think I'll most miss from that account. (laughs) Real, um, real investigative rigor from those guys. Um, Sadiq Khan is planning to trial the decriminalisation of Class B drugs in three London boroughs. I'm not sure how, how many of the details we know, but is this a good example of how mayors are empowered to sort of try out policies that party leaders won't touch on a national level? Yeah, yeah, it could be if it happens. And in fact, this is one of the things you often hear brought up when you talk about sort of constitutional reform, like in the US, for instance, that, you know, when you have local areas that can experiment, you get a more dynamic society, you can try out cannabis legalization, for instance, as many US states have done. And if it works well, you start spreading it out across the country. Um, it's not clear that he is going to, Hang tight on this. You can you could do quite a lot of criminology just trying to assess the emotional tenor of the statements coming out from from the mayor's office. Because you know, on on, on Tuesday it sort of seemed pretty strong. They were including ketamine. They were including speed. I didn't know anyone. Well, no wonder the speed. meetings are weird if they're including all of this. <laughs> The emotions are all over the place, place. really up, down, <laughs> sideways. Um, uh, and then, you know, the typical thing happens. You, have, you know, Downing Street comes out and goes, oh, this will this will just put power in the hands of criminal gangs. And you think, oh, yes, of course. Well, unlike your policy, which, as we can see, has shriveled criminal gangs down, down to size. And Keir Starmer, showing a sort of fairly customary lack of bravery on this issue, then spoke out against it when he was uh, doing his speech. And after that, the stuff from Khan was like, look, this hasn't been signed off yet. It was just a trial of three boroughs. It's been tested out in terms of Valley Police. It's for small amounts of cannabis for young people. They would have to go to counselling, you know, but instead of going to go to, you know, very, very small steps. Um, if he does have the guts to see it through, and right now he's looking pretty lonely out there. I mean, the press, I mean, Starmer, I mean, Johnson, you know, it will at least be an incremental improvement, a small but necessary step. And how would success or failure be measured? What would they be looking for? Well, to be honest, I mean, the main thing is we would be seeing less and they are almost always uh, not white and they are almost always poor kids being brutalised by the criminal justice system at a young age for what is a harmless act of experimentation. I mean, we're talking a little bit of weed, you know what I mean? Like, there is no conceivable rational reason that a sort of 20-year-old experimenting with cannabis should be facing any kind of criminal justice sanction. There just isn't. And and that fact is sort of emphasised by virtue of the fact that people at the cabinet table have experimented with drugs which are much, much stronger than that, much, much later in their lives. So the test is that you're not breaking the lives of young people for an act of harmless experimentation. And wherever we have tried decriminalisation by virtue of what it entails, that is the result that we get. I mean, given what we've seen in America, it is absolutely absurd that this is something that, that, that Starmo just can't even countenance. Yeah. 
It is. And this country is right now Mars. I mean, I've just come back from the US, right? So in Florida, whenever you go to get like vape liquid, they're like, would you like some drugs? <laughs> You're like, what? I mean, I wouldn't mind. I mean, you know, and it comes as sweeties. It is ridiculous. When you go to the US, you're looking at a society that is now becoming much, much more rational on at least that drug. Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. Um, just for recorded, Keir Starmer tested positive for COVID for the second time. Uh, which is unfortunate. Um, Omicron overshadowed Christmas with a record number of cases. Um, well, still still setting records. Rumours of another lockdown. Um, but Neil Ferguson says that it's plateauing. And the biggest problem for the NHS at the moment seems to be staff absences rather than full wards. So are we in some weird limbo where a variant is rampant and disruptive to a sort of unprecedented degree, but not that dangerous? And therefore, should we be doing anything more about it? To somewhat oversimplify, yes, we are in that situation. For nearly everyone now, COVID is not life-threatening. Of course, for some people, most of them unvaccinated or very elderly, it still will be. I mean, one in 15 people, according to the ONS, had COVID in England last week. One in 15. And that's with people on holiday over Christmas, schools closed, people testing, isolating themselves, minimising their socialising, and still one in 15 people had it. It shows you just how incredibly transmissible this variant is. And none of that is to undermine the pressures on the NHS. And as you say, particularly from the shortage of staff, but it is to show that even a full lockdown now, even, you know, China-style lockdown, and they are currently locking down to an extreme degree with a Delta outbreak, not an Omicron one, and they still can't get them under control. Even a full lockdown would only slow it down a little. And I don't think many people are up for lockdown at this point. Yeah, yeah. unless the promise was you will never hear about COVID-19 ever again. <laughs> no, the promise will be in two weeks' time, it will just come roaring back once you... I mean, basically, it's not... It, it, we're never, we're never not going to be in that zero COVID world. And one issue is the unvaccinated. Uh, Emmanuel Macron has said, uh, I want to piss off the unvaccinated, so I'll keep pissing them off. Do you like his vibe? I, I do quite like sort of dirty mouthed Lacroix. He's, he's quite he's he's always criticised as a bit remote and a bit Napoleonic and, and and not really down with the people. And then he's using a verb like MLD, which you know people use routinely in quite a loose way. So I quite like it. I mean, there's been a lot of slightly pious president shouldn't speak in this way in France at the moment. I just don't see what he's got to lose with this because anti-vaxxers aren't going to vote for him anyway. He's not part of them. They're already going to be furious with him for taking away loads of freedoms from them. And now he's proposing to take away even more. But, you know, 90% of French people are vaccinated. They don't want to lock down for the unvaxxed. They will probably quietly be thinking, yeah, I kind of feel that way as well. And there's a possibility, of course, from a public health point of view, it might make some of them non-vaxxed even more stubborn and with the radicalisation issues that you might have there. But the guy is standing for re-election and he he basically wants to, in his view, sort the sheep from the goats and say, well, are you going to come out and are you going to say, yes, people, it's okay, people not being vaccinated to his rivals. And that's the Mm. place where he's trying to get them to go. Because that, of course, is a pretty unpopular stance. Well, I think we've had, you know, we've had vaccines for a year. People who are unvaccinated keep dying. Um, the whole idea that, 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 that there's people who are just constantly on the verge of getting it done, but now they're not going to because Macron said 
Day and they just well forget it then and it's just like I don't know how many of these people there are and I don't want to meet any of these people so I say I say go for it Alex <laughs> Alex Andre is a commentator hello Alex hello Dorian Thursday is the first anniversary of the Capitol insurrection in the US which I think probably we all remember watching unfold on TV how has it changed American politics or I mean I suppose specifically one party well, I think it, what is more notable is how, how it hasn't changed it. Um, Q of QAnon fame, rather than the entity in Star Trek, um, has not posted in over a year now. And yet in a poll by the American Enterprise Institute, almost a third of Republicans still buy into the central conspiracy that Trump was secretly fighting a group of child sex traffickers. Um, loads of them <laughs> turned up in Dallas on the 3rd of November expecting JFK Jr., who I should say for our listeners, died in a plane crash in the late 90s, to turn up. Um, and announced an that he was going to be Trump's running mate. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, that he was secretly working with Trump. Um, there's an estimated 36 QAnon acolytes running for Congress in the in this year's midterms. So there was an expectation, perhaps a hope, that the storming of the Capitol would dent Trump's reputation. You know, surely people like us reasoned that'll be a step too far for most Republicans. Well, not a bit of it. In the last comprehensive set of political polls, in the autumn, he was still enjoying a net 65-point approval among Republican voters. Over 50% want him to run again. Almost half of them, 47%, would support him in a primary. The nearest alternative candidate is Mike Pence on 13%, with Donald Trump Jr. on 6%. So it's... it's just an extraordinary thing that that moment in which everyone sharply inhaled and thought, surely, surely this has shown people too far. No, the, the elastic band just went back to its normal shape within weeks. And it seems that conspiracists and alt-right kooks are with us for good. Yikes. This week on the show, fresh changes to our trading arrangements came in on New Year's Day. What can we expect from good old Brexit in 2022? Plus, Keir Starmer has cleared away the red tinsel to put his contract with the British public on the table. But what exactly is it? And in our extra bit for Patreon backers, we discuss Netflix's surprisingly divisive festive apocalypse, Don't Look Up. First this week, we are marking, not celebrating, a year since the transition period ended. Only 15% of people think the Brexit is going well, including just 36% of Conservative voters and 30% of Leavers. But nobody warned them. (laughs) (laughs) How could they have known? (laughs) On the 1st of January, new post-Brexit checks on goods coming into the UK from the EU began, except goods from Ireland, where the checks have been delayed yet again. In a poll for business leaders in the UK, only a third said they were ready for the new checks in full. 
Um, Ian, this takes you back to the early days of Romaniacs, yes, what where fun. you were like the stato of Brexit. <laughs> what, what are the changes that were brought in uh, of, as of Saturday and what has been kicked down the road? Um, OK, so, yeah, until now, it's basically just been, you know, the full range of sort of checks when you're taking British goods over to Europe. I mean, Europe sort of installed them all in one go and, and fairly draconiously, oh, strictly. Uh, now we're looking at the opposite happening, you know, for European goods coming to the UK. And most of the stuff is coming in, has come in on the 1st of January. First of all, your customs declaration form. There's about four pieces. I'm simplifying here, but there's about four things here. So customs declaration form, basically, are you paying the right tax on something? Is it the right kind of categorization? It's quite a technical document. It's got lots and lots of data fields. It's easy to get wrong. The second part um, would be country of origin. So you can get, you can have tariff reduction on all sorts of products, but you do have to show that the product originated in the place that, you, that it came from. So let's say if it's an Italian sausage coming from Rome, you need to show that none of the ingredients are from Sri Lanka or Indonesia or something like that. And that, again, is a quite forensic, quite difficult process that the importer has to go through. There's then something called SPS. These are sanitary and phytosanitary checks. These are for sort of animal, for organic goods, essentially to mitigate against disease. And that's where the testing gets really very severe indeed. That's where you start having things like border inspection posts, where you have on-the-scene inspections of goods. That's where you need a vet to sign off on stuff. Now, the full range of that, I can see both of you look like you're losing the fucking world to live. It's been a couple of years since people looked at me that way, actually. And, and this takes me back to those, to those good few fucking years. Anyway, I'm going to finish it. Um uh, well, yeah, so we're, we're phasing those in. So, I mean, they, I think another stage of the SPS comes in in July, another one in November. For the time being, it's just declaration, preemptive declaration before it goes over. And the final part is the GVMS stuff. GVMS basically bundles together all these declarations and attaches them to the vehicle that you're driving in on. Essentially, it's a kind of barcode. If you've used Verifly, it's like that. Put it all in and scan it and you're done. Um, the early assessments, I've been speaking to a lot of sort of freight forwarders, logistics guys, business representatives. Um, it's very, very early days. Yeah, you know, things don't really pick up for a while after the sort of festive period. People know that this bit's going to be difficult, so they're hanging back. But there have already been some tailbacks. There's been some pushback at Calais. We don't exactly know why. We think the GVMS might be uh, sort of not working for certain people that have inputted in things correctly. We think some people aren't filling it in correctly. They're putting the registration for the sort of the, the, the shipment rather than for the vehicle. It's also possible that some people coming over from Europe um, are not pre-declaring the SPS products that they have because they don't know that they have to yet. You're going to get a bit of that. None of it looks disastrous. The government will go out of its fucking way to make sure that there's no you know, TV images of queues on the border. The process mm. is about localizing delay. You have the delay at the depot where the freight forward has to come and hold things up and check everything, but are well away from the cameras. So it looks like teething problems. But yeah, at the moment, in these very, very early days, some people certainly are getting told to go back at Calais. But we're not going to see loads of sort of ships, you know, ports clogged with ships and those lorry parks. They have done everything to prevent that and the thing is i mean when i say everything that includes delaying the introduction of these checks multiple times mm. you know so i think if it came to that certainly the expectation among customs guys is if it ever came to that they would just go okay fuck the checks for a few days you know just just let the stuff go through don't worry about lack of control we haven't worried about it for the last year so just just let the stuff go through the main thing is don't allow those images those tv images we're not going to get those what we get is the gradual 
bleeding away economically that we've seen over the last year. You know, when you look at sort of food and drink, when you look at assessments by um, by economists, you're just seeing pretty fucking steep declines in exports, huge rises in expenses for companies, huge rises in the amount of manpower they have to spend on filling out all of these forms, on getting it right. Most of these costs are passed on to the consumer, contributing to inflation, to the cost of living crisis. That is the bleeding out rather than the stranglehold. Yes, because they want to avoid anything, which is sort of the day that Brexit failed. Exactly. You, know, you can't you can't have those TV images, and they, I don't think, will allow those TV images to ever exist. It's just great to see the bonfire of red tape that, you know, yes. we were promised. <laughs> and John Redwood was so excited about yeah. actually happening. No, it's gone really well. They've really lived up to their promises in that way. Yeah. I think it was the bad, <laughs> the bad red tape is what he meant. Oh. Oh. Not good British red tape. It's red, white red and blue tape. tape. You can't have red, blue red, red tape. tape. Red tape. That's fucking Not le tape rouge. <laughs> <laughs> um, Alex, the government website lists the alleged benefits of Brexit, if anyone would like to see them. Um, a points-based immigration system, the vaccine rollout, free trade deals such as that with Australia, cutting red tape, as we've just mentioned, improving environmental standards and animal welfare, and most importantly, forging ahead to remove the ban on selling in pounds and ounces and to restore the crown stamp onto the side of pint glasses. It's not, oh. it's not, something, it's not something I would have put in the, like my headline <laughs> offer there. That maybe kind of put that further down the, yes, the list. There's, there's real, there's real um, writing an essay for college and trying to make up the words. <laughs> Check word count. Okay, the crown stamp goes in. Um, I mean, we've talked here about the sort of, um, I suppose, the vaccine rollout being something that they, they sort of trumpeted as an advantage that, you know, yeah. um, early well, on. Is there anything well, there listen, you would agree All of it, all of it is in that same category. So, um, so in response, I'd like to quote to you from a 2007 piece entitled Tories Claim EU Crown Pint Victory in which Tory MEP John Bowis brandished a letter by the then Vice President of the European Commission, Gunther Verheugen, explaining there is nothing to prevent the crown marking alongside the CE marking. And he said, I quote, this always appeared to be a case of overinterpretation of a directive by the UK authorities. So, you might as well add to that list having bendy bananas again, leaving Schengen, dropping the euro and restoring the monarchy because they're basically just a, a, a performative list of fantasies. There is no substance to any of it. And the reason there's no substance to any of it and the reason they're in trouble right now is because they lack the ideological cohesion to know what to do with it they don't have any objectives tied to these actions. So they talk about a points-based immigration system. What they don't know is what they want that system to achieve. More immigration, less immigration, more of that immigration, less of this immigration. Ditto with deals, ditto with deregulation. All of these are levers, but you pull them for a reason. And at the moment, they don't have a coherent reason for pulling these levers. They just pull them performatively that's the point they are the dog that caught the car well have you did you know the the 70s robert redford movie the candidate where he's the sort of kennedy yes 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 sort of kind of and the last and it ends with him winning sorry guys but it was it came out before i was born i think um 
and uh, and he the last line is him just turning to his like kind of campaign manager goes what now yeah exactly <laughs> which, which is very much the brexit vibe and i wonder whether it's the flip side of what ian is saying just as there will never be the day that brexit fails and it's just going to be this kind of slow corrosive effect there won't be the day that brexit kind of triumphed because there isn't it's just going to be a kind of series of these things which take a long time or a kind of vague or they're kind of small. There isn't this kind of uh, yeah, you know, no, spectator right. butterfly but, but cover moment. What's interesting is that the, in compiling that list and in doing things like, for instance, celebrating the Australia deal literally every two fucking months this year, there's been some photo opportunity outside Downing Street, where they celebrate having done a deal with Australia at every stage of the negotiations. And that says to me that they know their audience is looking for the moment that Brexit triumphs. And so they're trying to create these proxies to give that to people. I'm not sure. I I know you're right that there won't be that moment. But what I'm not sure is whether there will come a time, and we are seeing already quite a lot of noises from right-leaning newspapers like The Telegraph today had a fascinating piece saying, we're not doing anything with this freedom. We, We got Dan Hannan writing for Conservative Home along the same lines. Um advocating more free movement with Australia. Um, there's been pieces in The Spectator. There was a the delightful... Um, it's going to open moment. more branches of walkabout, aren't they? There, there was the a delightful <laughs> moment where Edward Lee MP today uh, stood up and asked Johnson that he'd heard disturbing rumours they were thinking of granting India more visas in return for a trade deal and saying that... Our voters didn't vote to replace uh, European immigrants with Indian immigrants. And, I mean, you don't need a fucking decoder ring to get the subtext of that one. Mm. So uh, I I think it's going to get difficult because this is where we begin to sort out the sub-tribes within the Brexit tribe, and they want very different things. Well, this brings me uh, to my question for Roz. John Rental argues that as long as the Brexit negotiations continue, Brexiters and Leave voters will remember what they voted for and, and stick together. Do you agree or do you think they're... I mean, those poll numbers I mentioned at the top, they don't suggest sticking together. No, I don't agree, actually. I think he's wrong about this. Um, but partly because Brexit negotiations will continue pretty much forever. I mean, uh, our, our relationship with the EU will be <laughs> a constant source of uh, exciting negotiations for many, many years to come. And I don't believe that Remain and Leave identities will survive that long. I mean, certainly, certainly they're the dominant identities that people are still reaching for and pollsters are still reaching for. I mean, you see more and more polls where people are trying to line up remain and leave identities with attitudes towards other things, such as lockdowns, for example. But 
I'm not convinced that it is that persistent. The reason why I'm not is because we had some evidence before Christmas in the results in the North Shropshire by-election that a pro-leave constituency like that can vote for an avowedly anti-Brexit party if it feels angry enough with mm. Boris Johnson. Mm. And so the question is, will your attitude you know, towards Brexit dictate whether you back the Tories? And, and North Shropshire suggests that that link is being, is being broken, has been broken already already. And so does other polling of of the Red Wall. Then there's a question of when the Labour Party does start to be associated, as I hope it will, with distinctive approach towards running the country, will that division continue or will sort of party identities start to return and people will start to think, yeah, I like that offering, I feel more Labour or I don't like that offering, I feel more Conservative. So no, I don't think that it will persist that long. Well, do you think therefore that the Something like the Article 16 drama before Christmas could be read uh, somewhat cynically um, as, a, as a bit of drama to, to keep that leave Tory coalition animated. Do they need to sort of find um, exciting moments of tension with the EU because they're aware that otherwise if this just chugs along, then they are going to kind of, it is going to crumble. Yes, and that was a strategy, of course, that worked very well. And that's why they keep returning to it a bit desperately to see if it will continue to work well. And you see this exemplified in the front page of the Daily Express, which is constantly trying to ramp up loathing for the EU and the French and so on. But it's not really a strategy that's working anymore. Mm. because And the Conservatives ought to realise that and ought to know that. And they ought to know that because they successfully ran with the slogan, get Brexit done. It was not explained how <laughs> Brexit would be done. But nonetheless, people were just anxious whether they were remain or leave to get Brexit done because they were pissed off with it and they wanted to see the back of it and they did not want to hear any more about phyto and phytosanitary regulations. Yeah, I know how they feel. Yeah. yeah. And this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear. They, they did not... They, they, especially an anti They approach. were tired. <laughs> they were confused and they were bored and they wanted it to go away. And ramping up Article 16 no, is the opposite of making it go away. So it's a, it's a they, pitiful... She mean, yeah. Oh, they! <laughs> they wanted it to go away. Well, I mean, also mean we to a certain extent because I too am quite bored with Brexit, you know, um, in, in, oh. in some ways. I mean, in many ways, it is fascinating. In, in many, in many, you know, extremely detailed ways, it is infinitely boring and we should be honest about that, well, Stop! Don't make eye contact with me when you say the words infinitely boring. <laughs> just look, can you just look at Dorian on the TV? Or <laughs> right, look, honestly, if, if I was a Brexiter, I would, I would actually be getting fucking concerned right now. And it's not concerned like... We're about to go back to the EU. Like we're, just, we're obviously, you know, at least a decade and probably much more than that away from that. But just they can't find the positive. The negative is just this daily drip feed. Yep, sure, they've been saved from that one day that you get proved wrong, but it's a daily fucking drip feed just chiseling away at your product. You've established, as Roger was just saying, this emotional break with the project that means actually it looks a bit weird when you go back to it. Like they look fucked and they spent years making people extremely flamboyant imaginative promises about what this project was going to deliver so now you think 
no fucking surprise that they can't find anyone who thinks it's going well because the guys that didn't support it said it's going to work out like this and it is. Yeah. The guys that did support it were promised, you know, fairies with your breakfast and they're not getting any of the shit that they were told. So you just think, who would support it given the way that it, it is panning out? Well, they promised, like, they promised sort of IMAX and instead they're just asking people to huddle around a black and white telly <laughs> which is showing the trade deal with Australia again. <laughs> Um, Ian, on Monday, Lord Frost uh, joined the COVID recovery group, the ERG spin-off. Hero. Uh, form, formed by Mark Harper and Steve Baker. Um, what do these bastards want? <laughs> well, do you think it is? It's just a return? I mean, OK, so obviously you, we could say politically they, they say they want, you know, impact assessments before you do whatever. I mean, the only way to evaluate them really is, is psychologically, surely. And and I think it is to just to go back to that nice Brexit well, you know, mm. just to have that nice, clear feeling of we're the great defenders of English liberty. You know, I mean, not ignoring the fact that you're eradicating plenty of English liberties with Brexit and you would eradicate many more if you just allow COVID to just pump through an unvaccinated population, as they were suggesting. But I think it's that. I think it's the return to the nice, simple story where they're the goodies of an imaginary fucked up Camelot. And that essentially is how they operate. Well, it's like um, it, it's like uh, Frank Mansoir's book that Alex read at the oh, live yes. show, isn't it? It's Gorgeous. that kind of it's it's sort of it's goodies and baddies and kind of then you Spitfire and you know. <laughs> Finally, Alex, Liz Truss is in charge of the Brexit brief now. Could you see her playing hardball just so she can prove her Brexit credentials in the event of Johnson's removal and a spicy leadership? contest you know do you think the, the politics of this will perhaps overwhelm the uh, the pragmatism i'm not sure they're completely at odds she put out a big press release today or rather her team did about how she'd invited sefcovich to be wined and dined in her grace and favor residence at chevening that seemed to imply that she was on a bit of a charm offensive, as superficial as the notion is that, you know, she will invite a, a top diplomat to a sort of country estate and they'll, they'll get a massive fanny quiver because it looks like Downton Abbey, um, you know, and then they'll give her anything she wants as a result of that. I mean, that's obviously superficial nonsense, but it does seem to indicate that she's trying. And I I guess the judgment comes down to this. Will a result, will her getting a result where others failed get her brownie points with a Tory membership or will will continuing conflict get more brownie points with a Tory membership? And I don't think it's a clincher that it's the latter. Certainly she doesn't want to be in a position where she has something so firm that it can be assessed. But if she's a clever enough politician, then she will time her leadership challenge with having agreed something in principle in order to claim that, there you go, I can do it. I can get results where others failed, but with not enough detail to be ripped to shreds by the ERG. On Monday, Keir Starmer announced he was going on tour across the UK to promote what he calls a contract with the British public. Um, that presumably is going to be maybe delayed by COVID. His contract has three pillars, security, prosperity and respect. 
a conference. It was work, care, equality, security. Um, Alex, obviously three is the magic number, much better than four. <laughs> Nobody can remember four things. Um, what else do you read into this change? That secure, security comes to the front, prosperity and respect in, work, care, equality, out. I think we can go mad overanalyzing this thing. It's, I don't think it's about the content. I think at this stage it's still more about the presentation. Um, I thought it was actually quite, quite an ambitious and quite a risky speech in some way because it was effectively a direct response to this notion that patriotism is not talking Britain down. I thought it was a direct response to that when he said that um, politics is not a branch of the entertainment industry. So what he was saying is that, he, you know, I am the serious person in this. Vote for me if you want a serious person in charge. So I think it was about that aspect of the presentation and putting some markers down in saying that the flag doesn't belong to you, patriotism doesn't belong to you, you can love your country and want to change it for the better, which I think is an important point to make and one that very few people have made. Recently. Well, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn made it, but I guess maybe people, a lot of people he needed to convince just weren't convinced. Listen, Jeremy Corbyn, as you know, I like the the politics of the guy. I think he made a lot of very good points. The problem was nobody was listening because he made, A, too many points, and B, as a messenger, he was the wrong vessel because he really put people's backs up. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a success that uh, policies from that uh, Labour uh, administration are now being adopted by the Starmer administration. I think it's a compliment to them that he's, he thinks there's a lot of stuff there that was good. It just needs to be delivered in a slightly more professional way. I mean, he's never going to set the world on fire as an orator. It is akin to being told how to organize your receipts by your accountant. And that will never change, I think. But in terms of the presentation of the thing, in terms of the contrast of this, you know, this person that always looks like a service wash that was dropped off on the doorstep of number 10, and contrast that with someone that is smart, well turned out, and speaks with some confidence, and doesn't fluff his words, and doesn't go off on anecdotes about Peppa Pig world, I think that's what he was aiming for. And I think he did achieve that. Rod Starmer says he has a very clear idea of what a Labour government under him looks like. Uh, how clear is it to you? Well, not very, but I, I'm not sure that necessarily matters very much at this point. I don't think that's what he's trying to achieve. It is not about policy. It was not about policy. And you know, I can go into more detail. But it, it's the for me, the interesting thing in this speech was the idea of contract. Now, it's one that he's familiar with, as he pointed out, because he's a lawyer. So, you know, part, massive part of lawyers' jobs is enforcing and decrypting contracts. But he, then he deliberately said, I'm not going to be loyally about this. Uh, I want this to be very simple, which, you know, is quite a leap for Starmer because he likes being loyally about stuff. Mm. But the contract idea is a direct 
it's a direct link to the Blairite idea of tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. It's basically, and throughout the speech was this idea that if you played by the rules uh, and if, if you, you know, made sure you didn't attack NHS staff, for example, the NHS would be there for you. If you did the right thing, the government would support you. And that is a perennial uh, trope that plays, I think, quite well. And he will have recognised plays quite well with people who suspect that Labour is soft on people who don't, as they might see it, play by the rules. That was what he was echoing. And for that reason, I thought it was quite a Blairite speech in that way. But I think maybe like other Labour prime ministers as well, like not exclusive to Blair, Blair yeah. this idea of some sort of, you know, do the right thing and we will do right by you. Yeah, mm. but this 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 wasn't this wasn't a policy speech, and you know the 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 idea that it, it, there should have been policies in there, I think, is uh, perhaps a bit misguided. It's marking another line with Corbynism. Um, it's giving off the signals about what is what kind of government, government Labour would be without actually saying what they would do. To say what they would do is a hostage of fortune. The election is, is ages off. I mean, it, clear policies anyway are not a vote winner necessarily. People vote for a party because they trust the individual in charge of it to be basically honest and to fulfill the, the the promise of change rather than to enact specific things if you think if you and, and any investigation into how people and what people vote for will will show this it's not about the policies it's about offering a new start it's about trusting a party and an individual to deliver what they say they will do I mean, Stephen Bush has, has been sort of banging this drum for a while. And he does say, actually, the, the Labour has lots of policies. They've announced about under Starmer, I think it's about 200 policies. Mm. It's almost like on the one and on the one hand, they announce all these policies that people don't necessarily notice. And on the other hand, he does these big set piece speeches, which don't seem to mention any policies. And it's weird. There's a great piece that Stephen's just written, uh, The New Statesman, where he's sort of decoding Starmer's policy and goes, I think this is Starmer's uh, agenda and his analysis of what's wrong with the British economy and what he'd do about it. Mm. But this isn't, he's like the Starmer whisperer. Goes, I think what Keir is trying to say. So doesn't there have to come a point before an election campaign where you do join up the rhetoric and the policies? Because people might go, yes, I, I, all, I like security, prosperity and respect. And who doesn't? And it will be manifested in these ways. Yeah, there will come that point to, to a certain extent, but you don't want too many policies. I mean, this is the, one of the big mistakes that Corbyn made in 2019. That manifesto was stuffed with policies. There were so many of them. And that, particularly when you're on the left, leaves you wide open to accusations of unaffordability which is always always a risk for Labour. And if you look at what Stephen Bush was, was, was saying, you know, he was basically saying that they want to regulate the Labour market. Yeah, great. But actually, most people hear that and say, oh, you're going to make it harder to hire and fire people. And then again, to increase trade union power. And people hear strikes, inflationary pay settlements. It's really, it, it, the less you can get tied down to specific policies at this stage, the better. Ian, um, Labour are five points ahead in the polls nationally, a whopping 16 points ahead in seats that went Tory in 2019, which, according to one analysis, would mean winning back every seat they lost. Um, obviously, let's not get too excited. Mm. Um, that probably is not going to happen. But it, the fact that I, I could never have seen a, a poll result, poll figures like that, you know, two years ago, six months ago. So does this suggest that what happened in the Red Wall was not 
this sort of sea change after all, this sort of permanent realignment? Is it a bit more fluid than we thought? We don't know. Um, but the key failure seems to me to be able to maintain the culture war. And they're really struggling to maintain it. You see them throw stuff at the wall all the time. It just doesn't really take purchase. And without it, politics returns to a discussion of, generally speaking, material conditions, the justice of resource allocation. And I think partly is you can't stop that from happening once you go into a period like the one we're in right now, where you've got recessionary pressures, you've got high inflation, you've got supply chain crises, you've got very weird things happening to demand that, that have just sort of destabilized world economy, the, the world economy. You've just got all this stuff happening to people's pocket. And once that's happening, you, you've got a real hard time to keep things in the cultural area, even if they had found a narrative that worked for them and they hadn't, you know, mm. fucking overthrown statues weren't doing what Brexit did for them. And then there's the second part, that they have to do what, for instance, Trump was very effective at doing, what Brexit was very effective at doing, which is latching the culture war narrative onto the material conditions. To say things like, you know, this this problem you have with your job is actually fundamentally to do with trade with China, which is actually fundamentally to do with immigration, to just find a way of, for instance, racializing trade dynamics, these various kind of putrid tools that they have in the box. They haven't even got the culture war narrative that works, let alone the ability to latch it onto the material narrative. So on that basis, it kind of doesn't surprise me that it looks like those seats are starting to slide away from them. But, you know, I'm nowhere near feeling bullish about that to, to get to work on. Well, let's remember, not that long ago, before the Batley and Spen results, Starmer was on the ropes. It wasn't mm -hmm. just attacks from, from the left, it was attacks from the right as well. You know, because we sometimes forget that there are lots of people on the Labour right who, who, who mm -hmm. think the Starmer's too kind of too soft left. Um, he's obviously doing well at the moment. How powerful is it we did talk about this at various times with corbyn not just how he was, he was playing with you know how his uh improved poll ratings what they did to his power within the party do you think starmer only a few months after being like oh maybe he's on his way out is in a strong position or is it more precarious than the polls would suggest it's relatively strong i mean you do hear people whisper about that his, by being quite mercenary with the selections for the front bench, what he's also done is gotten rid of a lot of people that had personal loyalty towards him. Essentially, it's like the punishment for meritocracy. You know, you've actually selected people who think are going to be best, and most of them don't have that that much sort of connection to him as an individual. And then in politics, you often do need that. I mean, that's fine, and that makes sense to me. I completely accept that, but... It's sort of like trying to find the bad side of someone who did a good job. In that position, he looks fairly strong in the Labour Party. But like I said, it wasn't that long ago that he did not look very strong in the Labour Party at this point. Leading it wrong. But look, I can't see a scenario in which he doesn't lead Labour into the next general election. And I can definitely see many scenarios in which Boris Johnson doesn't lead the Tories into the next general election. Now, I, I know it's not very diverse to uh, quote somebody else called Stephen. Um, but <laughs> St <laughs> Stephen Fielding um, in a Spectator blog um, compared Star to John Smith in 92 to 94 and I've just over the Christmas break I treated myself to the Blair and Brown documentary mm, in full you're a lucky family caught up all that no my wife my wife <laughs> wanted to do it she goes well, and I was like it's not very Christmassy <laughs> um, but we liked it so much that we rewatched the deal <laughs> so it was like foot is very weirdly is that like the new Labour cinematic universe <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and we go oh he does Dave Morrissey does that thing Gordon Brown does with his hair all the time ah. uh, anyway um, so he's talking about John Smith uh, who as you can see in that documentary you know he was being very sort of cautious and sensible he did make reforms he did actually make some very important post-Kinnock reforms that Blair then built on 
but that he was sort of doing that in the background and in the in the foreground he just seemed like the bank manager waiting for the Tories mm. to implode and he was like I don't think we need to change that much and Blair was very impatient um, and then see, and spoke the language of radical reform and went no 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 we have to change the party much more dynamically we, we can't just sort of sit and wait is do you think that is a fair comparison that Starmer is uh, temperamentally uh, not, obviously the historical analogies do not align because this this would be the equivalent of coming in after Michael Foote, you know. But mm-hmm. do you think Starmer is temperamentally more in that John Smith vein? I think the analogy is absolutely spot on. So he lacks kind of imagination. Um, he's extremely cautious. He doesn't have a really clear conceptual sort of framework. He's not very good at positively putting across what he's for, which is why you get these endless speeches about, is it security today or is it fish fingers, you know. Mm. Um, he is... Exactly like John Smith, which is they have th- this is the problem with the strategy. The problem with the strategy is the other side have to fuck up for the strategy to work. You're waiting for the wheels to come off the government side. And that's exactly what John Smith was doing. And we have started to think, oh, that's not something that works. Tony Blair comes out. He did a warning a while back going, look, you're going to win some fucking by-elections and you're going to start doing better than them in the polls. And then you're going to sit there and think we're going to win. And you're probably not. And people should heed that because remember, God, is what we think of Tony Blair. Tony Blair is saying, and he's very good at winning elections. However, I sort of think that we're a bit restrained by history. We think the Blair way is the only way to do it. The truth is, I think John Smith would have won if he'd been alive, if he hadn't had that heart attack. So on that basis, you know, certain times when the wheels are coming off the government, and the moment they are, and there's no reason to think they won't continue to come off over the next two years, that can be a strategy that works. And it has to be that strategy because Keir Starmer is not about to change any more than Boris Johnson is about to turn into this sort of professional, competent politician. That is who he is, and that's what we're going to get, and we better fucking hope it works. Yeah, because that's, of course, this sort of counterfactual is what we never saw. Right. What would have... what what. How many seats would John Smith have got? And then there'd be this, you know, tendency in British politics to go, oh, the way to do it is to do what John Smith did and, yeah. you know, wait for the government. It's just that's not the way history worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And then Tony, uh, yeah. And the idea that Tony Blair might have been sort of sidelined <laughs> and he's just, oh, he's a bit much, <laughs> you know, um, as some people uh, would like to do with him now. Um, Alex, in other Tonty news, the announcement of Sir Tony Blair in the New Year's Honours list uh, was predictably divisive. There's a petition to cancel the knighthood currently approaching 700,000 signatures. What do you think of the of the honour, just straight up, the idea of making him... It's not just a knight, is it? It's a knight of the garter? Like a cool knight. Knight plus. <laughs> Look. Dark knight. <laughs> it's very di- this is very difficult for me because I hate the honour system. I hate... Titles. I hate the stratification, the artificial stratification of society, including the monarchy, as a as a system. Um, and so it's really difficult to defend or attack it because I dislike the entire system. But in the same way, I guess that John Burko should have had his peerage because that's the done thing in that system. I don't see why Tony Blair shouldn't have his knighthood. It's what you do with sort of long-time prime ministers. I mean, of all the things to to be exercised about, it's a it's a nothing. It means nothing. It it's literally there just to create talking points and divide the left. You know. If we knighted Robert Mugabe in 94 and Jimmy Savile in 1990, and believe it or not, Nicolae Ceausescu in in the late 70s, and Benito Mussolini in the 20s, 
like chill out. Tony, Tony Blair's you know, listening going, he no, made, I wouldn't, I wouldn't he compare made me one, you to know, Saffold and Mussolini. The guy was a very good prime minister. He made one catastrophic error of judgment and has done a lot of good work since. He's not a saint by any means, but, you know, overall his, his uh, career comes down, in my view, on the side of having rendered a public service. And so if you have this awful system that bestows these titles and honours pe- on people, and the way it works for former prime ministers is that if you do a significant stint over a, a certain mm. number of years, you get a knighthood, let him get his knighthood. Who fucking cares? Well, my, yeah, my opinion is, is sort of rather similar. I don't, really, I don't care about the honour system. And I think probably if you've been prime minister... Um, given the number of other people that get knighthoods. If you've been prime minister, you should probably get it. I'm surprised you didn't get it earlier. There was probably some kind of, you know, obviously lots of politics there. Is this petition, which has been getting a lot of, like, you know, coverage, like it's an angry news thing, is this the perfect cause for the left? As in, it doesn't have marginal chance of success. It has literally zero chance of success. <laughs> um, but it does keep the kind of outrage engines humming and the yeah, numbers go up. Yeah, but they'll win up. the argument... Um... <laughs> Dorian, they may not win the they may not win the war, but they'll win the argument. Yeah, I mean, they just want to scream. I mean, what they want they want to scream into the darkness, right? That's where that's what the. I mean, I know because I've spent a lot of my life screaming into darkness. Mm. Like, I see a fellow screamer into darkness <laughs> where, where, where I see them. Like, yeah, I, I know that shit, man. I, I know that way of life, and that's basically where they are right now. So, sure, they'll be perfectly happy screaming about Tony Blair this way and that way on Twitter for the rest of their fucking lives. It is, as Alex Hewitt just said, it is one of the most boring debates. I mean, it's up there with Churchill, good or bad. I'm just like, if I have another fucking, I can't. No, I can't ever. Have it. And everybody, and everybody in this room was was against the Iraq War. So like, it's not like, no, it's no, not. It's, yeah, it's not to even do, about. We, we have fucking yeah, we've done the, this yes. shit. Like, you know, as a society, that's enough now. Enough now. There should be a button on Twitter, but as soon as there's like, ble- it's like, no. Yeah. I actually up. thought after the petition, they should have given him just. They should have doubled the knighthood. You know when you double. <laughs> you know when you just, <laughs> just giving them an extra one. When you go, you go, you're grounded for a week, and then they go, but, 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 two weeks. You know, and they keep talking, and you're like, three weeks. And it's going to be like, the more the petitions go up, and they go, double knight, triple knighthood, giant sword, steed. <laughs> Mighty steed. He is now in command of his own town. <laughs> Keep, keep it up. Talking, keep, keep talking. talking. We'll give him Cornwall. <laughs> it's near the end of the show, so it's time to take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Roz. Oh, well, you may have heard that Russia was uh, kind of maybe going to invade Ukraine. And it is entirely possible that Russia will invade Ukraine, though the balance seems to be not quite yet. We'll mm. just keep on massing troops around the border and, you know, uh, scaring the shit out of them and, and, and enjoying it that way. But less less well known uh, in terms of the, the relationship between Russia and other countries is that Finland has been getting quite vocal about its desire to join NATO. And so has Sweden. Finland, of course, has a border with Russia and Sweden also feels you know, threatened potentially by Russia. So the question is wow. now, will they be allowed to join NATO? 
Will Joe Biden encourage that? Will Liz Truss make it perhaps one of her pet causes to expand the NATO remit? What will that mean for, you know, the uh, sort of incipient Cold War between uh, between us and, and, and Russia? And so that that is also a very interesting front in the hideousness of the Putin empire. Wow, Sweden. Sweden. Still neutral Sweden. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, man, they've been fucking, they've been getting exciting recently. They they went all funny with the COVID. They're not like they used to be, the Swedes. <laughs> <laughs> the boring old Swedes. It's not all. <laughs> Alex. So um, I've chosen Kosovo banning cryptocurrency mining, which I think is an absolutely fascinating story. So it's related to soaring energy prices. Um, and uh, which made prices of energy shoot up in Kosovo. And they've had an additional problem with one of their big power generation factories, which had to close because of some um, malfunction. And so because Kosovo used to be one of the cheapest countries um, for electricity, there used to be a lot of crypto mining going on there. And it does use up an enormous amount of power because it's basically big computers connecting with other big computers and putting through various transactions so that they can take a fraction, they can be rewarded with a fraction of each each transaction. And in northern uh, Kosovo, the Serbians there do not recognize the state, so there's some separatist movement and have been refusing to pay electricity for the last few years. And so the crypto mining currency business has been particularly booming in the north of Kosovo. And it got to the point where it was consuming so much electricity that they were having regular power cuts. And so the Kosovan government has now banned crypto mining altogether. And this has had significant effects, like like the value of cryptocurrencies has dropped significantly in the last few days. Can they ban NFTs as well? <laughs> Let's hope. They, they're not very energy intensive, to be fair. They may, they may be stupid, but they're not energy intensive. And NFTs are where I get off the fucking bus, you know, the bus of life. That is so, it's stupider than QAnon. I'm like, even QAnon wasn't so stupid that it made me give up on life. At least I understood QAnon. Like, I didn't agree. I hasten to make clear to listeners. I didn't agree with QAnon, but I sort of understood, like, the story, the narrative. I was like, okay, this is crazy, but I get it. But then with this sort of thing where it's just like, I've spent a million dollars on this, like, cartoon of a, of a chimp. <laughs> That looks like something from a skate shop. There's nothing wrong with a bit of intellectual property, even if it's virtual. That's my approach to NFT. I I agree. I'm with Ros on this one. You could have made exactly the same argument when people pay, you know, millions and millions of pounds to buy a dot by Kandinsky or something, but... You know, that's, I don't know, man. You spend about, a million quid on a fucking you, JPEG, and that is game over. You, sure yeah, no, I'm... Um, Ian, what's under your radar? The, no, under someone else's. It's on your radar. It's under everyone else's. Oh, this is not because I've just seen how this is going to go now. Because I thought about this and then, but now because of the Roz is looking at me with a fucking book. Okay, I want to oh, talk about. Dur- I, won't, I won't look at you, Ian. I'll look away. I want to talk about demand for durable goods. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do it. Um, okay. So 
there's a weird at the beginning of the sort of covid recession um there was a huge spike in people in spending on durable goods you know goods that last for a few years washing machines sofas whatever and people thought well that makes sense right because you've got all this money you would have spent in a restaurant or a pub or whatever and you you, know, you might as well sort out your fucking sofa seeing as all you're allowed to do is sit at home all day and, and stare at it but that it wouldn't last very long because once you buy a sofa you really don't need to buy another sofa for a really long fucking time and it did fall a bit but then it stayed up and the reason why you know if you're a parent trying to get like a playstation 5 or an xbox or something this christmas you would have found that that's very very hard to do it's part partly because of that and the impact that has had globally. And it's it's part of this sort of extraordinary story over the economics of COVID internationally that it's just the first time we've seen much like this. You know, you've got people, usually you'd have a recession, people are out of work. But actually in this case, because of furlough or because of working from home, which also has a technological reason behind it, that is not the case. They have a bunch of pent-up spending there. It's prevented from going in a certain area. It goes out on these durable goods, and you get these extraordinary bottlenecks, these supply chain shocks that are happening across the world. And the more it's one of those subjects that the more you read into it, the more fascinating a sort of conundrum it becomes, separating it out from the effects mm. of it, which are fucking disastrous. Just thinking through, because it is an unprecedented <clears throat> situation, not to mention the first time this has happened really when we've had global just-in-time supply, just supply chains. It is absolutely fascinating. And there's plenty of stuff out there about it. I would encourage people to read it. It gives you a better impression of why what is happening across the world is happening across the world and what it's like to be an economist and try to figure out you know, what the fuck is going on with this. But that's, what, it's so impressive. But that's what's amazing, you know, that, that I, you've seen economists candidly going didn't see this coming, didn't mm. expect this. There's a lot of sort of issues to do with supply and demand, which don't mm. seem to make sense, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. why you know, economics, it's kind of a science and then it's kind of not. Right. It's fascinating. I can't understand why, you, why you'd think that I wouldn't find that fascinating. That is, that is so... He did my, undersell, my, he undersold that. My jam, it's great. That was... Uh, <laughs> I'm just, just, just trying to evaluate your tone. <laughs> <laughs> the phrase impossibly boring did uh, wound... <laughs> Don't know why. Um, finally, I'm going to go back to um, Eastern Europe um, and Republicans' enthusiasm for authoritarian conservatism. Viktor Orban is up for re-election in Hungary in the spring, facing a strong challenge from a six-party opposition coalition, which is just kind of Naomi heaven, isn't it? <laughs> They're all joining together. Except that at least one of those parties is a fascist party. Right. <laughs> like, you probably wouldn't be so keen on that They're part of it. They're setting their differences aside. <laughs> Um, Tucker Carlson of Fox News broadcast in Budapest for a week saying that Orban's regime had a lot of lessons for the rest of us. And the American Conservative Union is planning a CPAC conference in Hungary. So, of course, Donald Trump has released an unprompted endorsement, which you really need to read for yourself to get the, the full effect of the random capitalization. <laughs> Rest assured, it does end with an exclamation mark. He goes, Victor Orban of Hungary. Imagine that this is basically a sort of like a 12-year-old's, at best, <laughs> sort of uh, homework that they did in front of the telly. Victor Orban of Hungary truly loves his country and wants safety for his people. He has done a powerful and wonderful job in protecting Hungary, stopping illegal immigration, creating jobs, trade, and should be allowed to continue to do so in the upcoming election. He is a strong leader and respected by all. He has my complete support and endorsement for re-election as Prime Minister. Um, so well done, little Donald Trump, <laughs> for your for your endorsement. Um, and that's the show. No, but your emails this week. But please do send in your questions uh, for next time. Thank you to Alex. Thank you, Roz. Thank you, and Ian, who I thought had a great last show. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you look very dashing and beautiful. Right? I, can't, I can't stress that enough. Oh, you can come back. Okay. Stay tuned for a preview of our extra bit exclusively for Patreons. You'll hear it after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest bakers. Many thanks from me to Lucy Oldham, Catherine Chown, Tommy Parker, Michael Lau Sorensen, Daniel Liner, Andy Ball, and David Miles. Hello and Happy New Year from me to Rich Bream, a very fine fish, Rich Bream, Papu, Peter Cotchis, M. Jem, Gareth McDonough, Jeff Heerman, and Thomas Tremaine. And a big thanks and best wishes from me to Matthew Smith, Colin Speller, Joe Gilbert, Stephen Deutsch, Alan Baker, Anna Morgan, and Mary Broadfoot. And thanks for me and Happy New Year to Jodie Sampson, Isabel Zervos, Trenton Williams, Mers Parchment, Andrew Stubbs, Robert Anderson and Mike Hyde. See you next time. Oh God, what now? I'm trying out a new tone for the new year. Was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ian Dunt, Ross Taylor and Alexandre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yolanda Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Pubmasters production. Now, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, on Christmas Eve, Netflix released Don't Look Up, Adam McKay's all-star satire about a comet that threatens to wipe out life on Earth, and the efforts of three astronomers to convince populist politicians, dopey journalists, and messianic tech barons to take it seriously. Not very Christmassy, but uh, when Gangbusters was number one for quite a few days in Netflix. Audiences are enjoying it. Critics have been much less keen. Uh, So what do we think? Um, I just want to make very clear to listeners that we will be spoiling every inch of this movie uh, in the discussion. (laughs) Um, So please, if you you haven't seen it and are planning to see it, uh, you might want to skip this and come back to it. Roz, you saw it specially for the show, right? I did, I did. And... Uh I was I was overwhelmed. Basically, anything sci-fi is just I'm incredibly susceptible to. It just gets to me, and I can't think straight. And then all I think about for the next few after few hours after seeing it is whatever horrific scenario it's presenting. Uh, you know, even something like Mars Attacks basically tips me over the edge. And so this this was this was bound to. And it, uh, I was I was shaking for most of it, literally shaking. I, I, I'm oh. sorry, you know, you've put me through this, but I, I thought it was actually spot on. It was spot on in, in exposing. The, idiocy of the news cycle and the stupidity of social media. I thought Ariana Grande did a fantastic job of taking the piss out of herself. <laughs> that was just so funny. And the cruelty as well. I mean, there was that there was that scene when um, when Jen- Jennifer Lawrence was shown the social media memes that had mm. been produced after she lost her temper on, on TV and uh, how cruel they were. And you suddenly, it was brought home to you how bloody cruel the whole thing is. So, yeah, and in terms of the climate crisis and the, you know, <laughs> analogy, of course, it was going to be six months until the until the comet hit. And even then we couldn't get our shit together and actually do anything about it. Of course, climate crisis, indefinite horizon. No, I, I, I loved it, but I, I, it was overwhelming. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support really does help us keep going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.